You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Okay, we're going to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 10. You'll find it on page 1164. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 10. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion and through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. You'll be made rich in every way. Sounds great, doesn't it? Fantastic to be made rich in every way. We want our lives to be fruitful lives. And I think it's worthwhile us stopping and considering what that means. Uh, We have received many gifts, many things we can be thankful for, not least the gift of life itself. Uh, I actually need to begin this with an apology because last week I suggested to some of our uh, ladies in their 30s that they were middle-aged Uh, This caused a huge amount of offence. I'm not sure why, but I was wrong, and I have to apologise. And so stop Facebooking me, okay? I've got the point. Uh, No, I was wrong, because as it happens, as one does, I was reading Pythagoras, uh, the ancient Greek philosopher. And Pythagoras says this, so I'm not going to argue with Pythagoras, okay? So you win. He said this, life is divided into four stages. Zero to 20 is childhood. 20 to 40 is adolescence. So you're still adolescence. Grow up. Uh, 40 to 60 is youth. So some of us, yeah, we are happy. 40 to 60 is youth. And 60 to 80 is old age. Some of you have made old age. The ancient Greeks did not have a concept of middle-aged. And I think they were very wise. So we are, the vast majority of us here are young people, and we're very, very thankful to God for that. And those of you who are older, um, you can be thankful for your maturity. We're given the gift of life. We're also, some of us are able to celebrate that we've been given the gift of a partner in our lives, and some uh, are, are looking for that. I read just an absolutely astonishing article from Julie Birchall entitled, When Did Romantic Love Become a Religion? Do you know there's a new word in the dictionary or a new phrase? It's called the one. It's now become just a a common thing, the one. And that's defined as the person you know you're going to love forever, absolutely, positively, the only person on earth you're meant to be with, your soulmate and best friend. And people are looking for the one. Now, Julie Birchall in this article, and I was so struck with it, I, I wanted to share a little bit of with, with you, says that we've made romantic love into some kind of religion. She said that for her, there wasn't a one, there was a cue, and she got to choose. 
But everyone's got this idea, There's the, is this the one? You're in a room, your eyes, is this the one? How would you know what the one is? And this is what she says. I think it was brilliant. We expect to fill the hollow places where we might have welcomed a deity. Until comparatively recently, there were three of us, to quote Princess Diana, in every marriage. It was a sacrament which the Almighty witnessed and a promise made to him as much as to the spouse in the knowledge that passion lasts a few years, but the passion, in capitals, never dies. She goes on to say, I think that the removal of the idea of the Almighty from society in general and romantic relationships in particular has left people more likely to seek superhuman solace from mere mortals, the one, and be bitterly disappointed when, when they inevitably find them to be less than perfect. Do not seek the meaning of life, she says, in the dear fallible creature lying next to you. Instead, look upwards. That's incredibly perceptive. And it's so true. So many people are looking saying, I'm going to find, if I find the one. And there are people who, when they hear about this or they see the children, they'll say, well, well, that's not me. I'm not married. I don't have this. I don't have that. If I find the one. And what we're looking at this morning, it, it, it ends, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. The one, if you like, the only one who can satisfy us is Jesus Christ. So we're going to look at, at this life of fruitfulness in that context, fruit coming from the Lord Jesus. One other thing just to say as an introduction is language is an absolutely amazing thing and certain words trigger things in our brain. They're kind of like codes. There are religious words like we talk about deacons and liturgy and doxology and fellowship and grace and Eucharist and all these are words that are in the passage that we've just read in the original Greek. I apologize to my Greek friends, but I'm going to cite that dreadful film, My Big Fat Greek Wedding, um, because the father in that keeps going on about how everything comes from Greece. Everything comes from Greek. He doesn't realize that everything comes from Scotland, but everything comes from Greece. Well, in actual fact, when it comes to, to English words, there are many, many English words that come uh, often through Latin uh, to our, our language. And some of these words we'll find here, um, sperm, spore, plethora, or if your name is Dorothy, uh, you'll find out what that means as well. So that's all in these verses that we are looking at. And they are verses that are Back to thinking about giving. Giving's a gift. It's a, a charisma. It's a gift of grace. It's something that's inspired by the cross of Christ. It's something that we do proportionately. It's something that leads to real equality. We saw all that uh, as we looked at the previous uh, chapters to this. It should be supervised. It should be accountable. And last week we saw how it is a harvest. You can... Uh, if you want, I'm not going to repeat all of that. You can get all, hear all those sermons online or read these things for yourselves. But now we move on. And Paul comes to just some other principles. First one is this, that giving enriches so that we can give more. Verses 10 and 11. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. 
You will be made rich in every way. And there's a reason. So that you can be generous on every occasion. Paul uses the words sperma and spore. The seed is scattered and it brings forth fruit. Every seed has potential. You scatter seed in your garden. It has potential to become something else. Without being crude at all, it's an absolute wonder, an absolute wonder how a child is born. Uh, Sometimes as you go through the various stages, if you're a parent, you observe, but even if you're not a parent, you can observe that that this um, baby is born, baby Daniel is born, and uh, not without pain, but is born, and there's that that bundle that's been inside you that is just quite extraordinary to, to look at and to see. And then before you know it, that baby is going to school, and you get quite emotional about your child going to school. Uh, and then before you know it, that baby, who's still your baby as far as you're concerned, is off to university. You think, what? That, wait a minute, that's, that was me two years ago. No, it wasn't. It was you quite a while ago. And you're looking and, and you, you are, it's, it is just incredible that all that came from such a small beginning. One of the things that disturbs me when people talk about abortion is they say it's not a child, it's a potential child. The child in the womb. The child in the womb is a child. A child with enormous and phenomenal potential. Well, here... Paul is talking about the potential of the seed of the Word of God. Deuteronomy 8.16. He gave you manna to eat in the desert, something your fathers had never known, to humble and to test you so in the end it might go well with you. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for for it is He who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms His covenant which he swore to your forefathers as it is today. You may be at different stages in your life in terms of prosperity. Some of you may be very well off and others of you may consider yourselves to be struggling a bit more, but recognizing that you're better off than many, many other people. But wherever we are at, none of us should say, my hands got me this, this is mine. We are saying this is a gift of God. This is something that we have received. Since we've had Greek, I'll give you a wee bit of Latin. Tertullian, semen es sanguis Christorium. The seed, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. He was talking about how the Christians were being killed and massacred in North Africa. And this is what he wrote. He said, the more we are mown down by you, the more we grow. You keep cutting us back, we're going to keep growing. I think of that when people say, the church is going to be wiped out in Iraq. The church is going to be wiped out in Syria. The more we are mown down by you, the more, said Tertullian, we grow. It's something quite extraordinary to think that There is this potential, this seed that is within God's church, within God's word, within God's people that brings forth this tremendous fruit. 
It's why we should always be looking for fruit in the church and in our lives. It's why we should never be content with saying, okay, we're here, we're here, we've made it, we've made it. There's always more potential. I mean, even just think of the, the children up at the front this morning. What potential in those lives. Think of the potential as you're, you're praying for and seeking to guide as we're supporting and encouraging in the Sunday school. Paul uses a word here. He says that um, you'll be made generous on every occasion and through us your generosity. And he uses a word plethora. Now, I'm going to have to be careful here, but apparently I read this, so you can correct me all you medics if I'm wrong. Plethora is also a medical term. It means it's the kind of thing that you could, someone has a condition that they get a very red face. Why do they get a very red face? Because they've got a plethora of the wrong kind of blood cells, too much blood. Now, if that's all wrong, forgive me, because I just read it. So uh, that's all that I know. It's not from my extensive medical knowledge. But that's where the, that's where the idea comes from, the term plethora. It's, it means, it means a, an excess of plenty. A plethora in a medical condition is too much blood in one particular area. Well, what's being said here to the Corinthians is, as you give, God will multiply and give a plethora in response to your giving so that you can give even more. It's a paradox, but giving increases our ability to give. And again, as in all these things before, although this is speaking directly about finance, it's not just about finance. It's about time. It's about ourselves. As we give, we receive, and as we receive, we've got more to give. We are to be channels of blessing. So the first thing is very straightforward, and that is that giving enriches us so that we can give more. The second is that giving results in thanksgiving to God. Through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Verse 12 This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Verse 13, because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ. And verse 15, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Jesus in Matthew says that men will see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Verse 13 says, this is to the glory of God. This is the, the doxa, the doxology of God. What is our doxology? Our doxology is not what we just sing or what we pronounce at the end of a service. Our doxa, our doxology to God is our giving of ourselves, our giving of our time, our giving of our money to help people and bring glory to God. The Shorter Catechism you all know it. hope you'll know it. What is man's chief end? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. You are doing that. You are glorifying God when you are helping the poor, when you are giving, when you are sharing with the needy in different ways, when you are providing hospitality, when you are helping with families, when you're helping with the single or with the elderly or whatever. That is doxology. That is giving, which results in thanksgiving to God. I've heard it described this way, that um, we all want to live lives which at the end of our days have people saying thank you to God 
that we were alive. And thank you to God for bringing us into their lives. I think many of us have friends, have people we know that as we look at them, we are enormously thankful to the Lord for bringing them into our lives. And this kind of giving is what we, I hope, what we wish to be. Giving is also worship. Verses 12 and 13, this service, and the word that's used is the word for which we get liturgy, liturgos, and it's, it's a sacrifice. Just as the priests offered a sacrifice in the temple, so the Christian offers a sacrifice of service to people. It's a diaconia. Now, we talk about the morning service here in the church or the evening service. They say we don't have a formal liturgy, but we do. And the service is not actually our gathering together for worship as such. I think when we think about things differently, it it would be this way, that what we do as we leave this in response to God's Word is our liturgy and is our service, is our diaconal service to God. We come so that we can hear about Jesus. We come so that we can worship God. We come so that we can pray together. We come so that we can be re-energized so that we can then go out and bring glory to God by serving Him in the world that He has placed us. Philippians 2 uses it exactly in this way. Philippians 2.17, even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and liturgy, service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. Our response to God's Word has always got to be, here I am, Lord, send me, use me. We don't come to get stuff for ourselves. We come to receive in order that we may give, in order that we may spend and be spent. Giving is worship also in that it's confession, because look what he says, men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ. When you give in terms of your money or in terms of your time, yourself, you are making a confession. And this is what your confession is. I think your confession is of your sin and of your dependence of God and on your trust in God. Because the only way that you can give is if you trust what God has said. If you say, Lord, I'm really, really, really tired, and I'm really struggling, but I'll do this because I trust that you will do what you say. You'll give me the energy. Or, Lord, I'm really struggling with finance this month, but I'll help this person. I'll do this because I trust what you say. Now, it's not advocating irresponsibility. It's not advocating that, but it is advocating an attitude of trust. Calvin talks about the opposite of that. He says, nothing is more famished and starved than the distrustful who are tormented with an anxious desire of having. So, I want this. We, we saw, um, you know, how posed we are. This, I, when I'm, I'm actually thinking about all this just now. I'm realizing I'm quoting Pythagoras and Greek and Latin and, uh, and all that kind of stuff. And now a French film that we saw down at the DCA. Uh, great, great film 
uh, de nuit un jour, I think. Sorry about the pronunciation, Natalie. Um, two days, one night. And it's, just a, it's one of these just typical European-style films, i.e. no plot. Uh, and it's all characters and so on. And it's about a woman who suffers from depression. And the whole film is that she loses her job because the boss of the small company that she works at uh, has decided that he can't afford to give all the workers a bonus. There's 16 other workers uh, or employ her. So he decides to lay her off. In fact, they have a vote to lay her off. And he, she managed to persuade him to give, him the week, to give her the weekend to try and persuade the other people to give up their 1,000-euro bonus so that she can keep her job. And it's a fascinating film because she goes around all of them of the complexities. What, what would you do if you're faced with that decision? But I need that 1,000 euros. I need it but I need my job. Yeah, but my family need it. And looking at the whole idea of things that are are greed and and so on, nothing is more famished and starved than the distrustful. I don't think I'm going to make it. I don't trust anyone. I want to keep my job and I want to keep my bonus. Too bad. I'm sorry. It's not my fault. I wasn't forced to make this decision. And that's very often an attitude that people are in. We say we, 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 we hold on really tight because... We're scared and we don't trust. And God says, I want you to open your hands and I want you to trust me. And the irony is, if we hold on really tight, nothing is more famished and starved than the distrustful. You, you make yourself a pauper by being tight, by being mean, by being desperate just to hold on for yourself. You're tormented with an anxious desire of having. I think this giving also in terms of worship, it's liturgy, it's diaconal service, it's confession, it's also theology. It expresses our theology. What does it tell you about the Christian church in Britain today that if you go and you want to raise money for um, children who are physically suffering, it's no problem. But if you go and you want to raise money in order to communicate the gospel to people who will suffer eternally, lots of Christians even are not interested. What that says is it says a lot about our theology, a huge amount about what we really think and what we really believe. How we give what we do indicates what we believe and I'm not saying, of course, I'm not saying that we don't give to help the poor or, or whatever. I'm just saying that we need a broader and more expansive picture. Giving is worship then. Giving is also fellowship and promotes unity. Verses in 13 and 14. Because of the service by which you've proved yourselves, men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Giving supplies the needs of God's people. It's sharing. It's koinonia. It's fellowship. It supplies what is lacking. It's through the church that our needs are met. And as people, as we give to people, when they pray for us, it's not that they regard us as some kind of savior. It's just they're enormously thankful. And is it a wrong ambition for me? I, I, I like the idea of people getting on their knees before God and saying, Lord, 
I thank you for David. You know this, I can't think of actually a better accolade than that. Could you understand and grasp that as you share and you give with people, what's happening is as they respond to God in thanks, they're lifting you up in prayer, doing the opposite of, uh, Lord, this is my enemy, please smite him down. They're doing the complete opposite. I don't know if this has ever happened to you, and I'm, I'm not um, saying that this, this has to happen, but sometimes it's happened to some of us anyway, that you just get this urge to give to somebody. Well, if you've ever had that, obviously think about it, but it's probably a, a good idea. Does God prompt us? Yes, I think sometimes he does. And I think it can be quite extraordinary how that works out. I remember one time that we were incredibly short. We were up in Barora and we were incredibly short of, um, I did something that was just typical of me, uh, booked a bus to take a bunch of kids on a trip and didn't have any money to do it and the church didn't have any money. And I promised the bus driver he'd have the money. And we needed £87.50 and um, the bus driver knocked £7.50 off, so that was £80.00. Uh, one of the parents gave us 30 pounds, so I said, well, we need 50 pounds. So I wrote out a check to him, um, not having 50 pounds in the bank, knowing that it would probably bounce. I wrote out a check, and uh, I thought, uh-oh. But when we got back home, there was, uh, through the door, someone had felt prompted to give 50 pounds. Now, we hadn't asked. They didn't know the need. We hadn't made it aware or hinted at it or anything. But 50 pounds was there in cash through the door. Uh, to this day, I don't think they know how. I, I still don't know who it was. But what I'm saying is that when you're in a position where you're able to help and to give to people, that strengthens the fellowship within the church. Not a kind of dependency culture. You know, the, not the kind of culture where the rich have their separate dinner parties and then they hand out things to the poor so that the poor can feel grateful. It's just a genuine sharing. Again, one of these Greek words, charisma. It's a charisma. It's a grace. It's charismatic, gifts of grace. I was talking to somebody yesterday who said they remembered the time in Dundee when there was these huge arguments about charismatic gifts. And it puzzled them at the time that the gifts of grace seemed to be causing so much division. Well, here, we've been told they bring unity. They've been told they bring uh, love, a, a sense of intense affection. It's not that we're buying love, it's that we express love, and as we express love, then, if you like, love begets love. It's kind of so much easier to love somebody who loves you. And you may say, well, no, I'm into just loving people whether they love me or not, but you're not God. You're human. Be realistic. And what you find is that we respond to people's love. So giving is something that is fellowship, koinonia, and it promotes unity. But it is also this. Surely, verse 15, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. It is ultimately a grace that is a response to the greatest gift of all, Jesus Christ. The word that he uses for gift here is storia, from which we get the term Dorothy. Dorothy means, I told you I'd get there, Dorothy means gift of God. 
What is the gift of God? Well, our lives are a gift of God, but they will end. Our marriages are gifts of God, but they will end. Whatever gifts you and I have, they will end, except this one gift, which guarantees absolute meaning to all the others, and that is the gift of Jesus Christ. And he's referring back to chapter 8 and verse 9. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, so that you through His poverty might become rich. And there is the key to absolutely everything. You say, I want to be rich in every way. I want to have this open-minded spirit. I want to be generous. I want to be kind. And it's so hard for me. And you mustn't take the message this morning as being, right, I'm going to go home, and I'm going to be nicer and kinder and more generous, and I'm going to give more, and so on. That's not the message. The message is, you look to Jesus Christ, and as you look to Jesus Christ and what Jesus Christ has done, you change. Because He's given, you can give. When you've received the one gift necessary, you realize, as it says in Romans 8, how will He not also, along with Him, graciously give us all things? God is good and the giver of good. We reap what we sow. If you took these verses out of the context of Christ, which would be wrong because it's all underpinned by that final verse, thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. But if you did, you could end up with a kind of theology which says, good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people, you reap what you sow, you do good things just now, you'll get good things later, you do bad things, you'll get bad things later. You end up with a Buddhist theology which says, you're crippled now because you were bad before. And that is not what this is teaching. What this is teaching is that as we sow what we have received from God, then even the bad stuff that happens to us is part of His great and expansive plan in Jesus Christ to bless us so that all things work together for the good of those who love Him. And the sowing that we are to do is ultimately the sowing in terms of our knowledge and our understanding of and our relationship to Jesus Christ. Earlier, we saw that he talks about their hearts will go out to you because of this surpassing grace given to you. That grace is, it's hyper, it's hyper grace. If you go on holiday to France, you come to one of these hyper markets and, you know, they've got everything there. This church is a hyper market in that sense because it's, it's hyper grace We're talking about God giving and giving and giving again. We don't believe, as the uh, Catholic Church teaches, that when you celebrate communion, that Christ is offered again and again and again as, as a sacrifice, as a repeat sacrifice of the cross. We believe that Christ was offered once for all to save sinners. But we do believe that Christ is offered in this sense, that every time we come and we meet together in worship, And you say, you know, I was here before, I received Christ, I accepted His grace, I believed in Him, but I've really screwed up since then. I've got so many things wrong, I've become so cold and so cynical. And we say, well, that's why you're here. 
because he gives more grace. He gives more grace. All the time. That's what we need to grasp and what we need to understand, that we can never outgive the grace of God. We um, sang part of Isaiah 55, and I want to finish by reading it because it's in the, this context that we can say this. And it's a word for absolutely every one of us. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good, and your soul will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Hear me that your soul may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations you know not, and nations that do not know you will hasten to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. Let the evil man forsake his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. By the way, that is so important. Please don't think of God the way that you think of yourself. God doesn't think like you. He freely pardons. That's really hard to grasp, but that's what he says. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. See, every time you come and you hear God's word, it's not a tickling of your ears. It's not a a waste of time. It's not a religious duty that you go through. Every time you receive the Word of God, it works within you. Every time we communicate the Word of God, it has an impact upon people, and it will achieve the purpose for which He sent it. What is that purpose? I think Isaiah 55, often we pick out verses, we don't take the whole. Here's the purpose that God is sending out His Word. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the pine tree, and instead of briars the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign which will not be destroyed. You will be made rich in every way. God wants you to go out of this place with joy. He wants you to experience and to know peace. That comes only through Christ, and you receive Christ as you hear the Word of Christ and respond to Christ. If you're thirsty, don't go looking anywhere else. If you're hungry, don't look anywhere else. Your hunger will never be fulfilled, your thirst never taken away without Jesus Christ. And 
as we experience that, what happens to us as believers is we just become these incredibly generous people with a plethora, an excessive amount of grace and goodness and good things to give away and to share with people, not to hold on for ourselves. May God grant that each of us and this congregation and His church in this city would be known as the place of joy and fellowship and peace. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Bless it to us. Thank you that there's an indescribable gift, a wonderful, wonderful gift, the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that as we receive Him, we receive everything. And Lord, some of us are concerned about our money. Some of us are concerned about health. Some of us are concerned about work. Some of us are tired and weary and worn out. Lord, help us to look to you, to be renewed and encouraged and strengthened. Some of us, O Lord, have become very closed, inward-looking, tightly bound, hurt, never going to be hurt again. And yet, we ask that you would open us up. We ask that as we rely on you and not on our own self-defenses, that we would be an open and generous and kind and gracious people. And may we go out of this place with joy, for we ask it in your name. Amen. We're going to finish. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening. Thank you.